This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet, and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Francesco Manetti. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang. In podcast 43, we are getting ready in the biodiversity groove hot on the heels of Earth Day in April, ahead of World Environment Day in June, and, of course, there is International Biodiversity Day slap bang on May 22nd. First, we have an exclusive interview with the Acting Executive Secretary of the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity, David Cooper. He'll be talking us through the latest international agreement and what it means for food security and farmers. Then we'll be hearing from EFAT's lead on biodiversity, Marie Aud Evan, about how we're putting biodiversity front and center in our work with small-scale farmers. Next, in episode 43, we stay on the Sustainable Roadshow, but in honor of the UK coronation, we're taking a little bit of a regal detour. We'll be talking to David Cope, head of sustainability at the Duchy of Cornwall. This 800-year-old estate was set up to provide an income for the heir to the British throne. So it was under King Charles, when he was Prince of Wales, that the Duchy Estates led the way in sustainable farming practices. We found out all about that. Also in May, there is World Bee Day. So our reporter, Nor Bona, will be bringing us news direct from the hive. Plus, we'll be talking to the people behind Treedom, the app that allows you to plant a tree from a distance and follow the project online. And the clever people at Ento Insect Solutions in Kenya will be talking to Michelle Makenamwimbi about insects for animal feed and how that too is protecting biodiversity. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform, and please rate us. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Francesco Manetti. The 15th Conference of the Parties, or COP15, to the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, or as we say, CBD, was an international meeting that brought together governments from around the world. Participants agreed to the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, a historic global framework to safeguard nature and halt and reverse biodiversity loss, putting nature on a path to recovery by 2050. David Cooper is acting executive secretary of CBD, and we asked him why it's important for farmers, small and large, to produce food sustainably. Well, the, the, the loss of biodiversity coupled with other crises like the climate crisis um, is essentially threatening the life support systems of the planet, the, the things that we de- depend on, food um, among them, but, but, but clean water, and, and in fact, the ecological functions that underpin, uh, among other things, agriculture. Um, and this is threatening to undermine sustainable development um, and human well-being. We know, you know, agriculture is completely dependent on biodiversity. Um, in the first instance, the range of crops and livestock and the genetic diversity among our crops and among our livestock that allow, allow food systems to be adapted to their environments, but also to have the adaptability to future changes. 
many of our food crops, particularly the most nutritious ones, depend on animal pollinators for their for their production. And biodiversity is really important also in control of pests and, and diseases. Without these elements of biodiversity, it's difficult for us to see sustainable agriculture in the in, in the in the future. Farmers and particularly Small farmers, you know, are in a sense ecosystem managers. They're the people on the ground. And so besides being at the forefront of some of the problems of biodiversity loss and other aspects of environmental degradation, they also can help um, uh, address this, this, this challenge. David, the, the recent CBD COP has been heralded as a great success. What for you were the highlights moving forward? So firstly, I think that we have a framework agreed by essentially everyone to seriously address the drivers of biodiversity loss, to reduce that loss, halt and ultimately reverse that loss and to do so by 2030. Um, That's hugely ambitious uh, as an overall mission for that uh, framework and it's backed up then by a number of very specific goals and targets. And these include uh, targets aimed uh, at agriculture, at food and agricultural systems, at subsidies, at the financial systems. They underline the importance of fully engaging indigenous peoples and local communities and protecting their rights. And as I mentioned, it has the buy-in of all governments. 189 governments were actually present in, 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 in Montreal and also of a whole range of, of stakeholders from business, civil society, farmers' organizations, indigenous peoples and and local communities. So um, these, I think, are some of the sort of key aspects of the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, the key agreement. But we also saw progress in Montreal on resource mobilization, not only in looking at uh, higher targets for mobilizing financial resources that will need to implement this plan, but also the agreement to create a new fund, uh, the Global Environment Facility, and also um, other agreements and other decisions that, for example, link make the clear link between biodiversity and health and the, the, the linkages between loss of biodiversity, ecosystem degradation and the risk of, of pandemics, for example, and how that needs to be addressed uh, as we go forward. David, I can remember back to um, 13 years ago, I was in Nagoya with IUCN at the time. Um, after Nagoya, we had the HE targets. And now after Montreal, as you just mentioned, we have the global biodiversity framework. Can you, in a nutshell, tell me how it's improved and will countries be more accountable? Yeah, and that's a very good point because we had quite a good plan agreed in in Nagoya, the Aichi targets. And this shows that no matter how good a plan is, it's just a plan. And the key thing is is implementation. Um, And so that is the challenge facing governments and, and, and facing everyone now. And we have seven years only. That's not very long to implement this plan. And that timeline is is important, given the urgency of the issue. If we don't address these issues this decade, then we will perhaps lose the chance to, to, to do so. Why I think we have a better chance of achieving these targets this time. Firstly, the buy-in I, I just mentioned, engagement of governments and governments beyond environment ministries. So we will need a whole of government approach and the political engagement of, of leaders. We will 
only implement this plan if there is sustained political and popular support and pressure to do so. But the second element here is the establishment of a new fund and also the establishment actually of a, of a committee on resource mobilisation that can continue to push for the new financial resources that will be needed. Certainly one of the key things uh, hindering the implementation of the Aichi targets was insufficient funding. Funding is always a challenge. We, 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 we see that in all countries. We see that in the climate process. But we do have uh, a new fund. We do have um, a renewed commitment to take funding issues seriously. Uh, thirdly, we have a better approach to, to monitoring the implementation, to tracking progress through a framework of indicators and then regular reporting back to the Conference of the Parties, the governing body of the convention, um, to review that progress and to, to make course corrections, if, if you like, um, as, as necessary going forward. So to have that constant feedback um, and, and pressure. And then, and then finally, I think the recognition uh, um, that this plan can only be in get, uh, implemented with the engagement of all the different sectors of society. On the one hand, businesses and with and, and financial institutions, and we see a much greater engagement of those this time than previously. Uh, but also the critical importance of people on the ground, um, indigenous peoples, small farmers, and other communities. And we will have more from David later in the program. Up next, EFAD's biodiversity lead tells us about what we're doing to meet the global biodiversity framework. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang, and I'm joined in the studio with Francesco Manetti. So we just heard from David Cooper at CBD all about the global biodiversity framework, the challenges and the opportunities relating to food security and agriculture. Now it's time to see how IFAD is going to be putting this into practice with Marie-Aude Even, head of IFAD's work on biodiversity and agriculture. She told us more. First, uh, we have a track record of integrating climate, biodiversity, and offering holistic landscape approach. We have already committed 30% of our climate finance to nature and to have climate adaptation throughout our investment. And uh, we've already reviewed that actually 70% of IFAD projects have some components related to biodiversity and 60% of IFAD funded projects that invest in sustainable product in production actually support agroecological practices, which are at the heart of the target 10 on agriculture. We can share different examples of this kind of project across the, uh, across the regions. So this is one important element. A second, I think, which is really core, is that the global biodiversity framework really recognizes important roles and contributions of indigenous people and local communities as custodians of biodiversity and partners in the conservation, restoration, and sustainable use of biodiversity. And the framework recognized that we must ensure the respect of indigenous people, local communities, lineage. And of course, IFAN has been investing in indigenous people and community-driven development for decades. 30% of IFAD portfolio is actually supporting community-driven development, including direct financing to communities, rural institutions, planning. We have an indigenous people policy that is very ambitious. We target indigenous people-focused projects, and we have our indigenous people forum that just 
was concluded and the main theme was climate change and biodiversity. So I think this is some of the things we do really right. For instance, I was involved in this very interesting project in Philippines called CHARM or in the Cordillera that has been uh, implemented really with a very, so it's a community-driven approach to agroforestry, afforestation, product, protection of biodiversity. And its main accent has really been to engage the communities, work directly with Indigenous People Council that, uh, and all the different local institutions to agree on a green covenant, a formal agreement that is recognized by the elders on how the communities will safeguard its biodiversity, plant more trees and be engaged. It even created community monitoring systems, invested in different agroforestry, farmer field school, and so on. And I was part of the completion mission recently. And uh, it was it reviewed that actually this project had one of the lowest costs for afforestation in the countries, while having one of the highest uh, re um, uh, recovery rates and afforestation. In addition, because we had this holistic and people-driven approach, it also contributes to livelihood and also nutrition diversity. So this is one, and we have several examples like that. So I think it's really, if I can play a key role to ensure a people-driven implementation of the biodiversity framework. Building on this project, I also want to bring another point where we can be really strong. The global biodiversity framework acknowledges the One Health approach that we have to articulate closely the health of ecosystem and the health of the people, including nutrition. And as you know, IFAD is targeting 60% of its investments to be nutrition sensitive. We notably support nutrition diversity and we support it through nutrition sensitive agriculture. So diversification of agriculture, recognition of neglected underused species and working in different areas for that. We have our recipe for change program that showcase how local food system can also safeguard the environment and biodiversity. All these are very innovative and I think we have scope to further leverage uh, the role of nutrition for biodiversity. And I can give another example, for instance. In Laos, I was participating to the design of a nutrition project, a follow-up of a nutrition-based project in the upland forest communities. The first phase was really focus, you know, on home gardens, agroecological system. But as we're designing the second phase, we realized that these indigenous people communities were really relying on wild food for most of their diet. And that was a key component of nutrition diversity. But the loss of biodiversity was threatening their diets. And also the, the, the shift of consumption patterns was creating nutrition problems. So in the new phase, we actually integrated a component that was articulated to natural resource protection, biodiversity, both in fishery and crops. So we can really push this nexus going further. And uh, finally, of course, we are recognized as an assembly of finance. So we can also mobilize our public-private financing, our different approach, our ASAP program to mobilize both public and private sectors along the value chain. As we head towards International Biodiversity Day 2023, what, what is the message you want to get out there? So, of course, I think we really need to keep the momentum and accelerate implementation of this global biodiversity framework. We need to mobilize more framework. We need to build more awareness that biodiversity is not, you know, a silo of things, but nature is the basis of everything. If we don't safeguard nature, it's a risk to our direct development. It's not something separate. We need to understand it's fully integrated in achievement of our climate change adaptation, of our nutrition, food security, economics. So we cannot do without it. So we really have to support and uh, we hope that countries can update the national biodiversity strategy with ambitions and that parties 
can mobilize the funding they have promised to do, and that the Global Biodiversity Trust Fund that will be established by Jeff will be ambitious and inclusive. In the same line, we hope that at the UNCCD uh, convention, that the next one in the other Rio conventions, we can promote this integration. IFAD has already committed 30% of its climate finance to nature, and we hope others can do the same so that we continue increasing the finance that go to nature. On the other hand, um, I would like to repeat some words of caution as well. As the moment rises and the framework goes into implementation, we have to ensure that the holistic and people-driven approach of the global biodiversity framework is kept when we implement it at national and local level. Indeed, I mean, conserving 30% of the ecosystem, restoring land and so on can be also a threat locally for food and nutrition security and for IFA target groups that are often indigenous people, remote people that are within these areas. So to safeguard these communities, the global biodiversity framework has adopted a holistic approach and it recognizes indigenous people's rights and roles and indigenous people, communities and civil society were really engaged at the global biodiversity framework. However, risks remain in implementation. At country level, as we know, communities and, and indigenous people, ethnic minorities, poorest people may have very weak tenure rights and recognition of their roles and also limited capacity to engage in planning and decision. So I really want to ensure that we really continue keeping the message that nature and people have to go together. Thanks to Mariad for that. And you can find out more about biodiversity and agriculture in developing countries by going to efad.org forward slash climate and environment. Coming up, a right royal trip to the farm. This is Farms Food Future with me, Francesco Manetti, and Michelle Tang. Now, one big piece of news in May 2023 is the coronation of King Charles in the UK. Up until the time he ascended to the throne, his income as Prince of Wales came from the Duchy of Cornwall. This 53,000 hectare estate was created in 1337, nearly 800 years ago, and is the source of income for the heir to the English throne. It covers 23 counties in England and Wales, and its agricultural operation has everything from arable to livestock farming, fruit production to flowers. So it is now passed from King Charles to his son, Prince William, the new Prince of Wales, and heir to the throne. King Charles was ahead of his time in terms of his commitment to sustainable agriculture, and he set his ambitions high for his estate as well. The head of sustainability at the Duchy is David Cope. We caught up with him earlier, and he told us more about how sustainability remains at the heart of the Duchy of Cornwall's operations. Well, our, our vision as an estate is for sustainable stewardship, and, and this is both for uh, nature, but also for communities and enterprise. Uh, so you're right, it's something right at the heart of how, how we work. When we talk about sustainability at the Duchy, we focus on objectives around being net zero and nature rich, but we also care about that wider social and economic sustainability for the people and communities who live and work in and around the estate, because we, we see that we can't achieve one without the other. And sustainability for the Duchy is all about sharing well with future generations, which for um, an organisation that's around 700 years old, this is clearly something that's really important to us. The, the ethos uh, that we have around sustainable agriculture has been part of what we've been doing for decades, uh, which in the UK at least is, is before many people saw it as a mainstream concept. 
but in practice, uh, what does this really mean? Um, uh, in, in practice, it's about our farmers continuing to, to um, run productive landscapes. Um, that not only then, you know, they're not only there for nature, but but we require our farmers to produce an income because that's what's going to pay the rents um, that's going to develop an income for the heir to the throne. So we need to make sure that these farms are making money by selling what they produce. Uh, and, and, and that produce is, is primarily food. Um, so we promote nature-friendly farming with our, um, with our tenants. Um, uh, nature and food production in one landscape rather than one being to the exclusion of the other. Um, and, and for me, this is where the concept of ecosystem services becomes really interesting. Ecosystem services are the things that nature give us for, for free, abundant water, clean air, biodiversity for pollination, healthy soils, carbon sequestration, and, and so on. And each farmer benefits from these ecosystem services working well in, in their farm. So better soil health ensures better production, cleaner water ensures better health, et cetera. But these benefits are often invisible and have sometimes in the past perhaps been taken a bit for granted. But for the last few years, the Dutch has been working with our tenant farmers to help them ensure that these benefits become visible again and are therefore integrated into their farming systems, into their farm business plans. And we've been helping support them to, to measure and increase their soil organic matter, reduce their reliance on inorganic fertilizers, for example, um, helping them to create habitat for pollinators or establish new wetlands, which will serve as buffers for floods and for droughts. And, and so this is what we mean by nature-friendly farming. All, all of this is good for nature, it's good for climate, and it's good for their farm business. Over time, I think these ecosystem services will also generate their own revenue streams through payments by third parties. That might be their buyers of their farm produce will pay a premium for, for farms who have been generating the most ecosystem services or there might be more place-based payments, um, for example, around flood alleviation. And, and in turn, I, I think as these payments for ecosystem services be become more common, this, this is going to encourage farmers to produce not only their crops, but also be financially rewarded for creating more sustainable landscapes. And, you know, I, I think this is going to be a big part of the future. And our job as a landlord is to help our tenant farmers to make these plans for that transition. So sustainability is at the heart of what we've been doing for some time. But I think that there's a continuous evolution and improvement in what we can do. And that's that's our focus today. One of the more recent initiatives is the Net Zero initiative. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yes, this, this work is, is vitally important. Um, it's not completely new for us. Uh, we focused on our operational emissions for more than 15 years or so. But the much larger impact of, of, of emissions across the estate is, is thinking about our full value chain. So um, as I say, the, the duchy doesn't operate these farms. So it's actually the emissions associated with tenant farms, with our supply chain, with other land and property as well. And that makes up more than 99% of, of our of our total emissions. We recently set a net zero goal for the early 2030s. Uh, so we've set our ambition almost 20 years ahead of the UK as a whole. We think we need to have these big ambitions because this is the biggest challenge humanity has faced. Our largest source of emissions are from agriculture. 60% of, of the total footprint of the Dutch estates comes from, from our agricultural tenants. 
Um, this is associated with fertilizers they use, from uh, um, methane produced by ruminant animals, from energy use on farm, etc. Um, but we also have a large slice of our emissions come from degraded peatlands. Uh, around half of the total estate is upland peatland, which over the centuries has been degraded by drainage. Um, and this has created a large source of greenhouse gas emissions. And, and, and so that 25% slice also requires us to, to take, a, um, to take a, a, a close look at how to reduce those emissions. So whilst agriculture and land use emissions, degraded peatland emissions, contributes such a large slice of, of, uh, of all of our emissions, we, we need to recruit, reduce across the board if we're going to achieve that net zero target. So that's from buildings as well as from land. I just don't want to um, place all of the, uh, all of the all, all of the action um, on, on agriculture. I'll focus quickly on the, the, the work we're doing with our tenant farmers. Um, we've been working with them. Um, we've been providing for free uh, services so that they can measure their carbon footprint, look at the health of their soils, look at the soil carbon that's, that's stored um, in their soils. Um, and, and we're supporting them into finding solutions to help them to reduce those emissions. And at the same time as, as we're doing that, the government's changing their subsidy system to encourage sustainable agriculture, which, which I think is going to be a really big help in, in supporting our 10 farmers to make that net zero, net zero transition. We've already actually uh, got a, a small number of farms, a handful of farms at net zero, uh, and, and that's brilliant. And we know several others have made big reductions in the past year already. But for others, this is going to be a, a longer journey. Um, each farm is going to need to form its own pathway towards net zero. Some will make it and exceed that target. Others, uh, others are not going to be able to make it at all. Agriculture is one of those sectors that's turned hard to abate uh, because the emissions come from biological processes, as, as your listeners will know. Um, so it's just inevitable that if we're going to produce food, we're going to produce some emissions. So we need to also draw down carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere through encouraging soil carbon improvements and more nature and woodland creation on farms to balance out the, the residual emissions. And, and to help to do all of this, we've set up a, a future farming team within the duchy who are going to help our tenants along this journey. And we also know that our tenants, buyers and processors will also be offering help. So, so they're not on their own. This is a collective challenge, one that, that we as landlord, um, tenants, uh, their uh, processes and buyers and government uh, all need to respond to together. Last thing I'd say is that regenerative agriculture, more agroecological approaches, nature-friendly farming, all, all of these approaches will, are going to help. But it's not just about working like that. It's, it's, it's also about identifying greater efficiency, new technology like precision fertilization, methane suppressing feed additives, selecting low emission farm products. This is about bringing technology and traditional knowledge all together at once. And I, and I think that what we see on farms, what we see with our tenant farmers is a real appetite to learn and to be able to experiment and to be able to work out what's going to work for their farm. And that gives me a lot of hope that we're going to achieve this big target, this ambitious target that we've set out for net zero by the early 2030s. Thanks to David Cope, Head of Sustainability at the Duchy of Cornwall. We'll be talking to David a little bit later in Podcast 43 about integrated thinking and what lessons can be shared with small-scale farmers in developing countries. In Podcast 40, we focused on Indigenous peoples' issues. In Podcast 41, we celebrated International Women's Day. 
And in Podcast 42, we talked innovations in agriculture. And next month, we'll be talking about water scarcity and climate issues in North Africa and the Near East. But coming up now, we're going to hear about bees celebrating World Bee Day. This is Farms Food Future, with me, Francesco Manetti, and Michelle Tang. On the 20th of May, we celebrate World Bee Day. Sadly, bees and other pollinators, such as butterflies, bats, and hummingbirds, are increasingly under threat. Bee populations have been declining globally over recent decades due to habitat loss, intensive farming practices, changes in weather patterns, and the excessive use of agrochemicals such as pesticides. This, in turn, poses a threat to a variety of plants critical to human well-being and livelihoods. Without bees, our food security is at risk. That's why food security needs bee security. Macedonian Honey is a company that is creating innovative technologies that improve bee mortality. Bees grown in their L hive become stronger, and this resistance to predators is passed on to future generations. Elena Fidanoska is the founder and chief executive of Macedonian Honey. A reporter, Nur Bona, asked her how have small farmers in developing countries benefited so far from these innovations. Bees are responsible for the majority of pollination services and are central to food security and to the health of the biosphere as a whole. Uh, one of every three bites in the food eaten worldwide depends on pollinators, especially bees. We all know that. A world without pollinators would be devastating for food production. The ecosystem exists in the delicate balance with each animal, plant and organism dependent on others for its survival. So reducing the number of bee colonies in the area reduces biodiversity and endangers many habitats of various animal and plant species. And reducing biodiversity increases the effects of climate change and upsets the balance in nature. And among other things, it leads to the development of many viruses and bacteria and their transmission between humans. So where we are, in a radius of 40 kilometers, there is no other beekeepers because of the difficult terrain, frequent attacks of the bears, and snow until April. But for the wildlife, those large mountain areas are their home, so if no bees are present in the wildlife, crop availability will decrease by up to 70%. Available food for wildlife will disappear and in the end, the wild animals will abandon the region or die until the last one. And when the species do disappear, there is no returning point and that is the end. Thank you. and. What measures are you taking to make sure beekeeping thrives in this area? Uh, we want to change the current way of beekeeping in order to facilitate the work of beekeepers, especially the young ones, to preserve the environment and overcome the problems of climate change. Our objective is to create tools, activities and equipment for beekeeping in 21st century, to include IT innovations, apps and platforms to support pollinations, biodiversity and planning well-being. That is why we offer innovation in this sector. With our new hive, L-Hive, and sustainable beekeeping method, we aim to do drastically reduces direct expenses of the beekeeping by 70%, increase the survival rate of the bees by 30%, produce high-quality local bee products with high added value, 
and create healthy and strong bees. We are developing an IT-based platform for all those who share the same values. Our ICT platform aims to create a new movement which makes no harm to bees. Nature and people connected uh, consumers, organizations and beekeepers. Direct support of rural development and economic growth. And dramatically expand the availability of local honey to our market, offering wider spectrum of services. We are holders of the European Climate Award for 2019 and Energy Globe Award for 2022. Thank you for sharing. This is really interesting. And how are products being marketed and what does the future hold? Uh, we use social network and online advertising to reach customers. In general, there is a problem with selling the product on the wider market because the big distributors and big markets in Macedonia are the main sellers and they are inaccessible to small producers. It is necessary for us small producers to work on the quality of our products, to join together to improve the distribution and selling of products, and to make most of the advantages of the internet and modern communications tools. Two years ago, with the help of Slovakate, we created a portal bnet.mk that brings together small family honey producers in Macedonia in one place through which they can advertise and sell their product. We help in marketing, packaging and labeling of the product. More work is needed to create all necessary function of the portal, but in the future we will work dedicatedly on that too. Buyers need to know what and from who they are buying. This is the possible if they buy honey directly from the producers. In this way, they receive extra quality for their money and they directly help the beekeepers in his existence in the rural area. Buying products from the producers, people indirectly help in the protection of bees and the biodiversity in the region because beekeepers, especially the many small family beekeepers among them, indirectly make a major contribution to preserving our domestic biodiversity. Thank you. And last question. What lessons learned from your experience could transfer to small-scale farmers in developing countries? Uh, although the public and private sectors organize training for the development and sustainability of the beekeeping sectors, there is almost no return from these trainings due to traditional methods and habits of beekeepers. It is necessary to change the view of beekeeping among young people. Beekeeping is much more than a livestock branch whose main goal is to produce as much honey as other products from bees as possible. We, as a beekeepers, have a great responsibility towards bees and their survival. We must not increase the danger of the extinctions with our irresponsible behavior and toxic treatments. The beekeeper should learn about the natural processes that take place in the hive and adapt his activities and equipment to them. It should work on strengthening the immunity of the bees, the natural defense mechanism, because no chemistry can replace it. The beekeeper will certainly get his reward for his activities because bees naturally produce more honey than needed and this surplus is what nature has given as a reward for the beekeeper. Also, it is necessary to change the attitude of the whole community towards bees and beekeepers. We are all called to participate in the protection of bees. Me, you, our neighbors, businessmen, policymakers, farmers, consumer scientists, etc. That was Elena Fidanoska of Macedonian Honey. 
You can find out more at macedonianhoney.com. Next, we talk donors. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Francesco Manetti, and Michelle Tang. Now it's time to drop in for our regular update with the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, which is currently hosted by IFAD. We're going to hear from leaders in the donor world about the issues that matter to them. The platform brings together donors that believe the best way to tackle global poverty and hunger is to develop agriculture, reshape food systems, and invest in rural communities. Its vibrant network of 40 influential donors includes international development agencies, financial institutions, intergovernmental organizations, and foundations. This time, I spoke with David Laborde, who is the new director of the Agri-Food Economics Division at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. David has been a close partner of the donor platform around data for better decision-making in food systems. Thank you, David, for joining us on the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development segment in the EFAD podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation with you. Thank you for having me, Michelle. We start all of our segments wanting to know the same thing, and that is, what are the issues that keep you up at night? Two types of issues keep me up at night. One is climate change and what will be the next climate shock that can actually create major disruption in the food system and create a lot of suffering for vulnerable people. And the other is how good are the different data sets I am working with. And sometimes I wake up to check some rows and data points because mistake in data can lead to mistake in policy advice. Mistake in policy advice can lead to bad policies and bad policies can hurt people as much as weather shock or incident. And that's a big issue to keep you up at night and huge responsibility too on your end. Now, even though that we are increasingly surrounded by data and are not always aware of how it informs our own decisions, people often think that data is boring. Now, what would you say to that, David? I would say that data are not boring. It's like if you tell me that letters are boring in a book, it's what you do with them, how they are combined. In itself, they may be a bit boring, but actually data tell you stories. Stories about countries, stories about people. It helps you to understand the world, even if you have not been in some places, if you even if you have not met some people. So like, I mean, data is in your field, like a wonderful book, and just read it and you will discover new things. Of course, some books can be a bit boring, depends who is the author, and what do you prefer? But I'm pretty sure that anyone can find a type of data that will excite him or her and uh, learn new things. David, I'm actually curious to know, when was the first time that you yourself realized that data was exciting, that is interesting and actually very important? I think the first time I really started to deal seriously with data when, when I was still a child, I liked to fish and I was starting to get logbooks about all the fish I was catching, depending on the temperature, the day, the place, and things like this to start to see pattern. And like this, I start to say, oh, I can understand how the fish behave just by the type of logbook I had. And so, yes, and since then, Looking at data, analyzing it, and seeing pattern among the data actually has been a big source of inspiration in my life and why I'm an economist. And beyond being a data expert, I am also a modeler. So we see this backbone behind the data 
that help us to understand the world that is pretty complex. And sometimes, yes, we can be just surrounded by so many data where we get lost. So that are important, but we need to understand what is behind them to make sense of them. Thank you for that, David. And hopefully this will inspire our listeners to pay attention. And who knows, it, this may also inspire our younger listeners to have a career in this field. Now, what are the stories behind what data in agriculture and food systems are telling us? And could you share some of your own experiences of how data has helped to pave the way to achieving SDG2 uh, Zero Hunger and to transforming our food systems? Yes, and it's really take place at very different levels. But I will say the first thing is if we don't have data on a specific topic or on a specific group of population, they tend to disappear from discussion. If we don't measure a problem, in many cases, we cannot even discuss it or solve it. So having data already makes sure that something is part of the agenda. And then after, when you have the right data or the good data, then you can actually change things. So for example, you can say, oh, everyone is focusing on, let's say, country A, uh, because everyone was looking at country A for the last 20 years. But when you start to have data on country A, B, A, C, you can start to say to people, no, no, but C is a problem. No one has really taken care of C for many years, and that's what you superiorize. And now what we have seen um, in some of the projects and discussions that have been is when you can show this, then you start to see money instead of just going to A, where actually the money is not used very efficiently now because there's not so many problems to solve anymore, going to C. You change the life of people in C, and you get a higher rate of return for the money from, from the north, and it's good. And what I say for countries is also true for a household. When you look at a household survey, even if all of these data may have been made anonymous, then you understand that this household, you know, is a retired woman living alone, just getting with a, a vegetable garden. And so the type of support and interventions you will need is very different because he's never going to become commercial, you know, a trader. Uh, but you see another family that have a different demographic structure, that have a different needs, and therefore you can really target the type of solution and intervention to different people. Because I think it's the key message here. The world is complex. There is no one solution for everyone. There is no an average farmer. There is not an average country. And we need this detailed information to really fix and improve the different part of the food system we want with the right solution at the right place. Thank you for that, David. Now, if there is one message you would like our listeners to walk away with, what would it be and why? So data is needed and data is fun. Okay. That's what you, you should care about. But just also don't be blind by just the word data or even today big data. Having data on everything will not solve your problem per se. You still need to understand them, to analyze them, to process them, and to make recommendations from them. Data is a beginning, not the end, but if you don't have the beginning, you will never get to the end. That's such a powerful message. Thank you, David, for joining us on the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development segment in the EFA podcast. And it's been a real pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. That was David Laborde from FAO. Now, if you use the FAO flagship reports on food security, agriculture, and nutrition, the SOFIs and the SOFAs, you'll be interested to know that these are now a small part of David's division. David was also a co-director of the seminal Saris 2030 reports. 
If you want to find out more about the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, go to www.donorplatform.org. Next, we hear from Treedom. You're listening to Podcast 43 of Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Francesco Manetti. Treedom is the first platform in the world that allows you to plant a tree from a distance and follow the story of the project online. Since its foundation in 2010 in Florence, more than 3 million trees have been planted in Africa, South America, and Italy. All trees are planted directly by local farmers and bring environmental, social, and financial benefits to their communities. Anna Weston is head of development, and she told us more about why trees and freedom go together so well in Treedom. Over to Anna. It is an uncanny mix of trees and freedom, and I hope that that, um, listeners will understand that actually by the end of our chat. But Treedom has been uh, up and running since 2010. So coming up to 13 years old now, um, and actually the company was founded uh, in Florence, in Italy. Our CEO and co-founder is is a chap called Federico Garcia, and he actually was working in Cameroon at the time and was witnessing quite a lot of deforestation over there, which um, unfortunately was kind of being carried out by people who lived there due to various different pressures um, and limitations that they were suffering. And what was happening at the same time was he was playing a game called Farmville. Now, I have actually never personally played this game. Um, it was one of Facebook's, I think, and, and I believe the concept included planting trees in, in a sort of farm that you virtually owned, but you had to pay for these trees. Now, of course, you know, the farm was virtual. You never got to enjoy these trees. No one got to sit under their shade or eat the fruits or anything. But he noticed that both himself and, you know, other players were actually still paying for this for this pleasure. So he thought, surely there's something in this. Can I combine these two principles of sort of remote tree planting um, to, you know, actually achieve good in the world? So to tackle this deforestation and to to kind of afforest land that, that could do with more further trees being planted in them. Um, so that was where it came from. And it was a wonderful idea because what resulted was, you know, a platform that I suppose connects people all over the world who want to plant trees and who crucially have the funds to do so with the organizations and individuals in the world who also want to plant trees, but, you know, have the land and agricultural kind of space to do so, but might not have necessarily the skills or the funds available. Um, and, and that's kind of where Treedom sits in the middle of those two things. So tell me, why do you think consumers, farmers should use your platform as opposed to others? So there are quite a few different elements um, to our approach that that help to distinguish us within, I think, actually what is becoming quite a busy market. Um, But we normally boil those down to three main elements. Um, So I'll whistle through them for you. But the first is our extremely thorough methodology. So we we don't say that we plant trees, uh, rather we grow them. We commit to only planting the right tree in the right place and for the right purpose. And then we maintain those trees for a minimum of 10 years. Um, So we make sure that we absolutely maximize on the environmental and the social benefits um, trees can bring if they are planted correctly and cared for just so. Uh, The second one is the transparency. So as I said about Federico's idea to have this platform which connected, you know, people in one place with the trees in another, um, we've planted nearly 3.5 million trees actually now over the last uh, 13 years. And every single one has its own very publicly available web page, which is on our platform. 
Um, and that web page has a unique picture of the tree, its exact geo-coordinates, um, and it becomes a little sort of social media page or tree diary, as we call it that is furnished with updates from the project for years to come. And, and, you know, those updates could be videos from the farmers themselves, updates from our forestry managers when they go and visit, for example, or some of the nursery managers who are kind of growing the seeds to saplings might post an update of what they've been up to with the community so that it really connects um, the users with, with the impact wherever it's being achieved. And then the third element is very much a follow-on from, from that second one so it is that impact sorry the engagement the direct one-to-one -one engagement that this this web page enables um they are giftable so you know with links or perhaps qr codes we enable both individuals and companies to gift those trees to other people um, to allow them to adopt one and those people can then follow the story online and engage directly um, with the impact that it's helping to achieve. So um, that has really become the kind of the core way we work. You know, we, we don't just grow the trees for growing trees sake, but we actually enable audiences all over the world. Um, and that really is a mix of individuals or companies and their individuals um, to take delight in that activity from afar as well. Can you tell me a little bit more digging down here about the social and economic benefits of the projects where you plant the trees? Absolutely. This is my all-time favourite thing to talk about, so you're going to have to interrupt me if I go on for too long. Um, it's it's definitely the most interesting part of what we do, and it's so, so impactful. It's really our pleasure to be able to deliver this impact um, and those benefits. So we have this incredible team um, of agronomists who uh, who have decades of experience in, you know, agriculture it, separately, but also agriculture for international development. Um, we call them the forestry team, but they truly are wizards of their kind. Um, and they work to partner up with NGOs in the countries that we work in so that we have these partners to consult who have extremely long-standing community relationships um, and knowledge and connections and all the other things that you just simply cannot buy or, or you know, speed through in time. So we work directly with them um, and then through them directly with those communities all over our project countries. Um, we predominantly plant in Central and Southern America, uh, in Africa and in Asia. And that is because in those countries, not only do trees grow much faster, you know, it's tropical climates where if cared for correctly, they are given a much stronger chance of reaching maturity and, and flourishing. But also we can achieve, as you said, Brian, those social benefits. Um, it really does become life changing project over there. Um, and, and that's uh, what we really take pride in. So the process is very consultative. Uh, we are in talk with you know, the local authorities that can be community chiefs, just roundtables of, of local citizens. And we really work with them over a very long period of time to understand those social and environmental needs of the community. And then together with them, our forestry team build plans to help and meet them. Now, we only plant in agroforestry systems, which um, I'm sure I don't need to explain the definition of here. Very simply combines the principles of agriculture and forestry. So we literally place trees in land that is normally already being cultivated for agricultural purposes um, because we know and, and I'm sure many of the listeners also know just how well, you know, forestry and crop species can overlay one another, um, you know, help nourish one another and coexist very, very harmoniously. Um, 
so those crop yielding trees can provide food security, obviously a huge social benefit. Um, you know, avocados, mangoes, oranges, guavas, papayas, cashews, all those lovely things that actually can be used to feed these farmers, their families. Um, but also once productive enough, you know, what we aim and what we do support these farmers to do is also to harvest those and to sell them at market and, and create, you know, further income opportunities for themselves and their families. Um Nice following from that, actually, there are a huge amount of employment opportunities that um, run across all of our very, very long term, you know, wide reaching systems. Um, agroforestry systems have a huge amount of different jobs that need doing. And, and we make sure that we work with those communities to employ out of the community so that, you know, we're bringing the salaries and wages and everything to people who live there. We employ women in every single project um, so that we're helping to address that gender inequality. Um, actually, over 30 percent of our project managers in our project countries are women and actually I think the number is 56% of our direct beneficiaries so the smallholder farmers are also women so that that you know work to really make sure it's it's heading towards as much of an even split as possible is to help you know direct the, the gender inequalities through the education and the employment opportunities that we provide um, and we also make sure that there's lots of education and skills-based training provided to every single farmer and every single, you know, community project manager that we work with and that we reach. Um, they're very much taught with a view to also being passed on to the rest of the community, which I actually witnessed myself when I went to visit one of them. There was a group of mamas that had kind of joined at the farm I was visiting and the farmer that we had trained was then kind of training them and he was handing out seeds and he was teaching them in Swahili, unfortunately, so I couldn't listen in. Uh, well, I could listen in, but I couldn't understand. But he was, you know, teaching them about this plant does really well here and these seeds will help you grow this. And it's exactly what we do it for. We, we don't teach skills just for that person to use, but we would love um, and we're delighted when they do teach those to other people that they live near. Um, there's lots of other things that trees can achieve that are slightly more environmental. So, you know, helping to prevent water runoff and, and address potential areas of flooding. Uh, we plant deep rooted trees to increase ground stability and all those sorts of other things. So, um, yeah, the, the team have a great time of kind of developing what species should go where to try and address all of these problems. But yeah, it's just fantastic. I'd encourage anybody to have a look at our blogs and our, our website to, if they want to learn any more. Thanks to Anna Weston, and you can find out more about Treedom at treedom.net. Coming up, we head over to Kenya and the people at Enter Insect Solutions. This is Farms Food Future. Are you curious about sustainable and innovative solutions for animal feed production? Look no further than Ento Insect Solutions Kenya. Brian Nayota is a farmer and founder of the company. He tells us how they are contributing to biodiversity conservation through insects for feed technologies. The other Brian, as we call him, also shares some success stories of farmers who have benefited from his company's technology. Our reporter, Michelle McKenna Wimby in Nairobi, asked Brian Nayota to tell us more. A range of feeds that uh, many farmers are using has nearly the same food types that humans are competing with animals to feed on. We are giving the food that we would have used for food as humans to animals. Now, as Ento, we bring in not a very new technology, but ancient knowledge, because many of the animals were used to eating or foraging on insects in the wild. 
and as a company we look into bringing in these uh, insects for animal feeds and lower the competition for the food lines that humans are also depending upon. Thank you for that brief intro. Could you explain the role of entomology and biotechnology in insects rearing for animal feed production? Naturally, you would have uh, insects breeding in the wild and uh, continuing their life cycles. But when we intend to bring these insects into a production line for feeds, we want to have intensive rearing of these insects. That involves mimicking the natural conditions or the ideal conditions for these insects in the wild in an artificial space. At that point, you want to borrow a lot of biotechnology and uh, entomology and just mimic the soft uh, requirements for these uh, insects, for them to produce not just to remain alive, but to even push further and produce beyond or maximally in an intensive environment and hopefully be able to gain the most value out of a batch of production or out of an insect in production. Entomology and biotechnology just makes this possible in an industrial scale. How does the company address the challenges of intensive insect rearing in smallholder farming communities? For a long time, the rearing of insects has been made possible, but the large companies and corporations are the ones that were able to create just the ideal units for rearing these insects and do it intensively on their farms. Smallholder farmers, on the other hand, were not able to come into this area of commercial insects. Insects such as black soldier fly and the cricket would require very sensitive temperatures and conditions in order for them to breed successfully and give you eggs, which you then propagate into the next stage of getting a larvae that will be used as feeds. For us, we are focusing on making custom-made solutions depending on where the farmer is located, in, depending on what the smallholder farmer is working on, we are able to customize small solutions. And sometimes even take away the burden of the soft sensors and the complications required in maintaining these insects and just give smallholder farmers a shorter life cycle to rear on their Farms, which becomes more easier for them. Thank you for that um, detailed information. Can you share some success stories of farmers who have benefited from into insect solution technology? I have uh, one uh, farm that I'm partnering with, which at first they were doing a lot of poultry rearing, and then due to the high prices of feeds, they actually stopped their poultry project and when we met with the director of this farm he was able to take up the solutions of uh, insects and now even diversified to produce insects uh, specifically black soldier fly larvae for other farmers now he is uh, a moderate producer of uh, bsf for 
other farmers in the region around the Kisumu. And another farmer also who was uh, had also pulled out of productivity for the same reason of high food uh, feed prices. But when they got uh, our solution, they were able now to bring back their projects and they are now working on their poultry uh, flocks. So where productivity was lost, at least I've seen productivity coming back and farmers enjoying greater margins than what they were getting in the era of uh, high feed prices. That was Brian Nayota, founder of Ento Insect Solutions Kenya. Coming up, we head back to talk sustainability at the Duchy of Cornwall. You're listening to Farms Food Future with Michelle Tang and Francesco Manetti. Now it's back to the Duchy of Cornwall's Head of Sustainability, David Cope. The Duchy is the property of the heir to the British throne and has been since the early 1300s. Under King Charles, the Duchy has led the way in sustainable agricultural practices. Earlier, we heard how the Duchy is moving to a net zero emissions target by the early 2030s. David explained how the concepts of sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, better soil health, net zero, all of these fit into the idea of integrated thinking. Integrated thinking means that we, we look at creating value in a broad sense, not, not just around income. So if we look at the value that's generated for nature and for communities in the short term and in the longer term. So when decisions are made, we, we, we look across these different dimensions to weigh up the right way ahead. Uh, and we consider what's materially important to our stakeholders as well. So it's this sort of integrated thinking approach that's led us to wanting to invest in making a rapid transition to net zero and a nature-rich estate. We can see the, the wider benefits, the wider value, and, and we can see the, the, long-term, the long-term rationale for doing this, remembering that we're a 700-year-old estate and, and for us, sustainability is, is, is all about sharing well with future generations. So we need to join up these dots to integrate how we think about long-term sustainability to ensure that, that future heirs to the throne will also benefit from the estate. So what's next, do you think? What lessons, particularly for, from IFAD, for farmers, we work with farmers in developing countries, what lessons can you draw from this and what can they, what can they learn from them? What's next is is delivery, relentlessly delivering. The 2020s is referred to as a decade of action. Uh, if we want to secure a successful future, we need to take action today. We we can't we can't delay. And we know that we're we're, we're not alone in wanting to make change happen. So we're working well with our tenants and other external parties, but we want to share the lessons we're we're learning more widely with others as well. But I, but I would say we're quite humble about what we're doing. Uh, I, I know that there's many others out there who are doing great things that we can learn from. And in particular, on your question about developing countries, I, I wouldn't profess to be an expert about what's happening across the rest of the world. Every, every place is unique with their own farming heritage and, and their own, their own um, traditional knowledge. But anyone who's making their livelihoods from the land understands the importance for caring for the land and I think that binds us together no matter where we are in the world. 
a bit of a reflection, I would say, is that in, in Europe, I think we've we've perhaps fallen into a trap of thinking too short term and adopting what I would term an extractive form of agriculture. We took from the land, we've not given enough back, but but now we know we need to give back to the land. And that's why I think the concept such as regenerative agriculture is, is getting such a good level of attention here. But more, more specifically on your question about what we might learn from developing world, I think there are, there are two specific examples of where I think agriculture in the UK could learn from agricultural practice elsewhere. Firstly, in agroforestry and intercropping. In, in the UK, many of our farms have been driven to specialise. And so create, you know, we've created large open fields of monoculture production. There are some really good examples of intercropping and agroforestry in many other countries that demonstrate actually this approach, this more diverse landscape approach, uh, increases the resilience of production. And I, I hope that in the UK, we can, we can learn from that agroforestry and intercropping knowledge that, that, that exists in the rest of the world. And, and secondly, sort of connected to that and about the diversity of landscapes, integrated pest management, I think, is, is one area where, where I know it's one area in the UK, which is now generating a, um, a lot more interest. We, we've shifted over the last century to being a really chemical based form of agriculture on average. We rely on sprays and medicines to rid our crops and livestock of pests and disease. But actually what we can see is that by farming in ways which are much more diverse and much more welcoming to natural predators, we can achieve a much better balance between nature and production at a much lower cost. So I'm really pleased to see these sorts of ideas coming back into the mainstream in the UK. I think many farmers here are having to learn these approaches anew, whereas I, I feel that in many other parts of the world, they've been embraced more continuously. So, so I think that there's something that we, we should learn. We should learn from these other parts of the world. Thanks to David Cope, Head of Sustainability at the Duchy of Cornwall. And you can find out more about the Duchy at duchyofcornwall.org. Coming up, we have more from another David. This one is David Cooper, Executive Secretary at the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang with Francesco Manetti. As promised, we can now hear some more from the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity's Acting Executive Secretary, David Cooper. Focusing on the recently agreed global biodiversity framework, and particularly on the food and agriculture targets, we asked what they're aiming for, and what is the most important thing for small farmers to be doing? So the um, key target, if you like, addressed at farmers is target 10, which calls for all agricultural areas, aquaculture areas, fishery and, and, and forestry areas to be managed sustainably and to use more biodiversity friendly practices. And what this really means is harnessing the biodiversity that exists on farms and in farming landscapes. And that can, in fact, help support uh, production. So one example is making better use of genetic diversity of crops and livestock. And often small farmers are developing their own uh, land races that are well adapted to local landscapes. 
to local conditions and constraints, to make better use of pollinators. We know that in many parts of the world, we see production lower than it could be because of absence of the full abundance and diversity of pollinators, bees, uh, other insects, often um, other animal species as well. Uh, and then similarly for pest control organisms. And often we're in this vicious circle of overuse of agrochemicals, in particular some pesticides, that then prevent the use of, of the natural enemies because not only are the pests killed by the pesticides, but then so are the, the natural enemies. And we've seen that this can lead, in fact, to uh, a resurgence of pests um, as they as the pests become adapted, if you like, to the pesticides and, 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 and the other uh, natural enemies of those pests do not. So practices such as integrated pest management can, can be incredibly important. So really we want to turn from a, a vicious circle of practices that harm biodiversity, which then undermines farm productivity, to one where we make better use of biodiversity, harnessing that biodiversity, using local knowledge on the ground that can then create a positive feedback and support production and long-term resilience. So that's that's one that's just one target and that's that's a key entry point I think for agriculture and the farming community. There are other targets that talk about pollution directly and the use of fertilizers and, and pesticides correctly. And then looking more systemically, um, there are targets on, for example, subsidies. Currently we spend an order of magnitude more on finance that is aimed at actions that undermine biodiversity, that destroy biodiversity, than we do that supports biodiversity. And that includes often a number of misdirected agricultural subsidies. If these could be turned around, then we could have uh, support for more sustainable agricultural practices. David, as a final question, looking to the future, if we implement the global biodiversity framework in the coming years. What, what sort of food system would you hope to see, would you expect to see? So um, one that is that clearly recognises the central importance of biodiversity for agriculture, one um, that harnesses the biodiversity on farms and in farm landscapes to support production, uh, and thereby also reduces some of the threats to biodiversity from, from pollution, and by improving productivity can also help to reduce uh, threats from land use change. But this has to be accompanied by more systemic changes in, in the food system as a whole, um, reducing waste, both waste for use of inputs, such as overuse of fertilizers that takes place in many parts of the world, although there are some parts of the world where perhaps fertilizers are underused, but also waste of food itself. And so, in fact, we, we have a target to half food waste. We also, though, need to look at reducing overconsumption in rich countries, uh, particularly of meat, which has a disproportionate impact uh, on, on the environment. So, essentially, we need to look at more equal consumption patterns. Equity will be an important element of this. Uh, and it means, I think, moving to... A system of, of agriculture that is that is more diverse, a mixture of markets that are more local with still um, international trade for for commodities where that makes sense, and 
a greater say over agriculture and agricultural policy, actually, by by small farmers, peasant farmers and uh, small landowners. We know that if we look at across farming systems globally, most of our nutrients, most of our high-value foods are produced by smaller farmers in diverse landscapes, whereas many of the commodities that are used, for example, for animal feed or many of our calories are produced in larger farms in, in more uniform landscapes. We should be moving towards strengthening a, a small farm sector that produces the food that people eat. Thanks to CBD's Acting Executive Secretary, David Cooper. And you can find out more about the Global Biodiversity Framework at www.cbd.int. And that brings us to the end of episode 43. Many thanks, as always, to our super fantastic director, Brian Thompson, and also to the rest of the team, our reporters, Noor Bona and Michelle Maguena-Mimbi in Nairobi. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efat.org forward slash podcasts. Next month's episode 44 will be looking at water scarcity and climate change impacts in the North Africa and Near East region. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at efat.org. And send us your voice or text messages to that address, and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please rate us. We'll be back at the end of May with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Francesco Manetti. And from me, Michelle Tang, and the team here at EFAD. Thanks thanks for for listening. listening.